You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. You shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus uh, famously doubles down on this commandment in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So he quotes the commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body may be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So as we've done throughout the series, we we aren't just talking about the specific commandment and what they mean. We're doing that, but we're also talking about why God says them in the first place. We got plenty to talk about here, obviously. The, uh, the commandment says no adultery, which would be cheating on your spouse or participating with someone who is cheating on their spouse. And then Jesus says, uh, very similar actually to our discussion last week about murder, that God is actually after our hearts on this issue, not just the action, but the heart that drives the action, and that Jesus wants us to pluck up the seed that would become a tree that produces the fruit of adultery. And then, just a little bit later in the book of Matthew, Jesus reinforces the whole idea. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So that term that Jesus used there for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And it's it's what you might think of as like a junk drawer term. It means any and everything sexual that isn't a man and a woman who are married. Any sexual interaction or expression that is not in the confines of a man and a woman in marriage is porneia. And Jesus says, is restricted. Can you even imagine something being more nails on the chalkboard to our culture's soul? than this level of restriction. Restrictions on sexuality. Jesus says it's not even just what we do, it's how we think and what we want. Wow. Christians are always trying to ruin the fun, are we not? Obviously, I say that joking, but there might not be anything in Scripture that our society is more convinced that they are right and God is wrong than when it comes to the biblical sex ethic. So we better know not just what God says, but why he says what he says. We got a ton to talk about today. Let's start broad. And let me tackle a couple of false assumptions that many modern people have that have a trickle-down effect to how we think about sexuality. Let me just cover two false assumptions First, the first false assumption is the idea that freedom is the absence of restraint. We tend to assume in our culture that restrictions are bad. 
just broadly, generally, restrictions are bad. We love freedom, and we tend to think that true freedom comes from throwing off any external constraints and following our hearts or doing what we want to do. So this gives me the perfect opportunity to tell a story that I've told you about a hundred times, and it is one of my favorites, and I'd like to repeat it here. It's a story about my friend who used to be a youth pastor. You'll quickly discover why he is no longer a youth pastor as I tell you this story. One time at youth group, he wanted to teach the students that freedom is not the absence of restraint. And so he brought out a fish. It was a live fish. He said the fish's name is Willie. It was in one of those bags that fishes come from if you get them from a fish store. Swimming around in water in the bag. He said, this, friends, is Willie. Is Willie free? And the students thought about it for a second. And they said, well, no, no, he's not. He's trapped in that bag. He's not free. No, he's not free. So then he brought out a bowl, a fish bowl full of water, and he pours Willie into the fish bowl. And now Willie's just having the time of his fish life swimming around in the fish bowl. And he says, now, what about now? Is Willie free? And they said, no, he's not free. Free, Willie. He's not free. And he said, okay, okay. He wheels out an aquarium full of water. Fish nets Willie up, puts him in the aquarium. Willie's just, you know, running, doing laps. What about now? Is he free? He's not free. No, he's not free. So my friend scoops Willie up, plops him down on the ground on the stage. Willie flops to his death. And he says, would you say that he is now free? And these young students said, we've made a huge mistake. We're so sorry, Willie. We're so sorry. He steps forward and he says, Freedom is not the absence of restraint. Freedom is the presence of the right restraint, the restraints that fit your nature. A fish is not free if he's not confined to water. And that is a lesson that after years of therapy, these students have still not forgotten. (laughs) Freedom is actually not the absence of restraint. It's the presence of the right restraints, the ones that fit our design, our nature. If you're designed to live in water, then being restricted to water is actually when you thrive. It's a false assumption to believe that all restrictions are necessarily bad. It's a misunderstanding of freedom. Here's the second false assumption, and it's very much connected to the first. It's a false assumption that our desires match our design. That our desires match our design, or to say it most positively, that following our desires is the best path to knowing what is good for us. Now, this passes as absolute common sense in our society, even though it does not hold up to scrutiny whatsoever. And when I tell you that it passes as common sense, here's what I mean. A while ago, I was with my kids at uh, the Children's Museum Adventure, which is awesome. We love it. And I posted on the wall, they had a quote. It was a Steve Jobs quote. It said, quote, Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Steve Jobs. And that's right down the hall from an aeronautics exhibit that explains the physics of lift and thrust. Right, Just right down the hall from it. So that sort of thinking is so common sense that we don't think twice before we put it beside a scientific explanation of the physics of flight. And you'll never catch me hating on Steve Jobs, but that's an entirely stupid thing to say. And I can prove it very easily. The State Fair is here. I believe today to be the last day. I might be wrong about that. And my wife does not like the State Fair. And in her defense, other than that, she's pretty great. (laughs) I find 
the state fair to be the perfect combination of unnecessarily fried foods and people watching. And I have a desire, a deep desire, a desire that I was born with, to eat all of those fried foods. And so there's a true story. A few years ago, I was at the fair for dinner, and I ate, I wrote it down so I would remember, I ate a foot-long corn dog and fries, and then I had a strawberry shortcake. And they were all amazing. And then the next day, I went with some friends for lunch. So I got the cheesesteak sandwich with fried mushrooms and had some mini donuts. And then that night, our plans changed, and we ended up back at the fair for dinner. So it was three meals in a row at the state fair for me. And that night, I had the donut hamburger with the strawberry lemonade. And I was eating an elephant ear for dessert while we watched The Hypnotist. How do you not love this place? I don't understand. And the honest truth, this is for real. As I was eating this elephant ear while watching The Hypnotist, my body began to shut down. And I don't, it's never happened to me before, and it's never happened since. And I don't know how to talk about it to you other than my body just quit. Like, it was just like, no, no. And, and as somebody had, somebody ran to go get me some water, and I had to lay down during the hypnotist show just on my seat. And right before I passed out, I just yelled out to the crowd, but I had to follow my heart. Now, I made up the last part. That's not true. But the rest of the story... The rest of the story is completely true. Our desires do not always match our design. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And in no way should we necessarily assume that our desires match our design. And I think just the slightest bit of critical evaluation makes that fairly obvious. So the question is, what is our design? And today, of course, we're specifically talking about marriage and sex. And so turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. So this account in Genesis is the one that Scripture often references back to as the Bible unpacks the biblical sex ethic. So let's look at what you might think of as the original source material. Genesis chapter 2. Let me just show you a couple of things here. We'll look at verses 19 through 25. All right, verse 19, chapter 2. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So there's no one here for him to connect to, to relate to. The animals are there, but he can't connect to them emotionally and relationally and intellectually and spiritually because he's above them. He's made in God's image and they are not. So he's there, but he's alone because he's without a counterpart and he's given the assignment to name the animals as they pass in front of him. So you can imagine the scene, animal walks in front and he's like, antelope, aardvark, two A's. Hippopotamus. And he's bored and he's lonely. Verse 21. So, God, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God creates the woman named Eve, drops her down into the garden. It's important to note that at this point, uh, at this point clothes had not been invented yet. And so Adam is bored naming the animals. He's lonely. He's like orangutan. And he looks over and he sees the naked woman. And scripture says he breaks into what is actually an ancient Mesopotamian love song. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, which, which loosely translated is something like, that one goes with me. This is someone that I can be with and connect with. This is a counterpart for me. And then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One is the word akkad. And when you combine it with flesh, it means something like fused together at the deepest level in a way that creates something different. So I don't know, maybe a parallel would be something like if you take two hydrogens and one oxygen and they combine, they become something completely different. They become water. So this is a totally different thing. Two no longer separate, but an individual, but now they're one. And it's a, it's a different thing. And this is all on purpose. And in, in fact, in Ephesians, Paul gives us more insight on this exact verse that we just read, where he says that the marriage relationship is about much more than just that marriage relationship. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Paul says, and he quotes from Genesis here, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2. And he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says here that the reason that marriage exists in the first place is because God wanted to create a living, breathing advertisement for Jesus's relationship with his bride, the church. So God invented marriage to be a sort of advertisement for how Jesus relates to and loves his people. And this is a subject we've done a lot of work on through the years, and there are tons of resources available on our website, so I don't want to deep dive on it. I just want to highlight Paul's point is that marriage is supposed to be this billboard for how Jesus loves his people, how Jesus steps into a covenant with us of grace, where he will never leave us or forsake us, where we're joined with him as one, two separate entities, yet now joined for eternity. And because our relationship with Jesus is based on grace, we know that we know that we know that he's not going anywhere that he'll be with us. God's love for us isn't conditional. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. His love makes us lovely. He doesn't love us because we're worthy. His love makes us worthy. He loves us because he's chosen to love us. And Jesus's love says, no matter who you are, where you go, what you do, I've given all of myself for you and I will be with you. And this is what marriage is all about according to scripture. So keep reading now in Genesis chapter 2. They're married, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So sex was invented as a shame-free event, and the sequence is critical. 
Adam's looking for someone to connect with, to join his life with, relationally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. He and his wife Eve are joined together in marriage, and the physical picture of the oneness that they now already possess is sex. So sex is invented by God to be a way of saying with your body, all of me, everything about who I am, now belongs to you. I'm giving all of me, good, bad, and ugly, (laughs) to you forever. It's a way of physically acting that out. So God's intentions was that when someone enters a sexual relationship with another person, they're acting out with their body what's already true in the relationship at all the other levels. That we are now relationally, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually one, and we're acting that out now physically. In a sense, sex was supposed to be a way to renew your wedding vows, just with your body. Another way you might think of it is that the the biblical vision for sex is a, a tangible symbol of an intangible reality. A tangible symbol of an intangible reality. So I'll give you a comparison. It's similar to that of communion. So when we take communion together in our gatherings, it's a tangible symbol of our intangible relationship with Jesus. In a similar way, sex is this tangible picture for what it means to belong to a covenant, to be in a covenant relationship with another person. Sex is sort of like communion for your marriage. So if a covenant says, all of who I am belongs to all of who you are, then sex is you tangibly acting that out with your bodies. So the idea would be that every time you have sex with your spouse, you're renewing your covenant. You're renewing your wedding vows. You're just acting them out. So this is critical to know because it begins to make sense of why the Bible teaches everything that it teaches about human sexuality. This is why sex in the biblical sex ethic is reserved for a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And that's the Bible's teaching on sex in one sentence, that all sex belongs inside a covenant. Because it's meant to be a way of saying, all of me belongs to you. So this is why we diverge from our culture so sharply on the subject matter. It's not just that we disagree on what actions or should be permissible or not. We completely disagree on what sex is and what it's supposed to be in the first place. I mean, just completely disagree. And there's no other way to put it. We just think sex is more important than our culture does right now. We do. We reject the idea that human beings are simply animals with time and chance on our side. We reject the idea that sex is just a drive like hunger or thirst. So where our culture would say sex is no big deal, as Christians, we just say, we actually think it's a really big deal. We just disagree. And to be honest, the the crowd that says sex is no big deal, I have a hard time taking seriously because they sure don't act like it's no big deal. I'm I'm just thinking it's like you're, you're chasing sex with every fiber of your being. You talk about it all the time. You think about it all the time. You seem basically willing to do whatever it takes to get it. In fact, you often identify yourself based on it. These aren't the actions of someone who thinks something is no big deal. It seems as though you believe it's a very big deal. And then, if you just think about it, 
Sex is an action that has the potential to create human life. It is inarguably essential for the survival of our species. So what rational argument is there that it's no big deal? We would go extinct without it. It's on a very short list of requirements for human survival. It's at least somewhat a big deal. So that's the idea. Sex with your spouse is meant to be a covenant renewal ceremony. And the Bible says you must not do with your body what you're not doing with your life. And this is why Jesus comes after not just our actions when it comes to sex, but thoughts and desires and hearts. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. We'll read it again. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that word for lust there in Greek is epithemeo. And in other places in the Bible, it gets translated as coveting, which is the idea that you you want something that's not yours or that you cannot have. It's this selfish, often insatiable desire. So greed would be the lust of money, this insatiable or selfish desire for money and wealth would be the lust of money. And it's, it's worth mentioning because that clarifies some things. Jesus is not just talking here about attraction or appreciation of beauty. To look at a person and find them beautiful is not a sin. Beauty is a good thing. Beauty is a part of God's good design. That's all normal and healthy. This is about the selfish longing for something that isn't yours. It's about the commodifying of a person or a relationship. And to state the obvious, we do not live in a place that tells us that sex is precious and to be honored and handled with great care because it's a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, We don't live in a place that warns us of the dangers of lust. Uh, In fact, I would argue that a new development is we live in a place that warns of the dangers of a church that says that lust is a sin. That's the new development, in my opinion. We've changed definitions of words on this. And now sometimes when a church won't condone any sexual behavior you prefer, that church is slandered as being toxic, abusive, and traumatic. I'm just throwing that out there for you guys to have some eyes to see what's going on out there. That what it takes, All it takes to be called what used to be awful words is for a group to hold to a biblical sex ethic. And in society... Contrary to being concerned with lust, we've actually now commodified it. It's it's a commodity. We we say sex sells. There's a reason that our commercials are all just wildly attractive people. So just, I mean, imagine, imagine that shampoo commercial, but instead of the model, it's just a totally regular looking guy. Receding hairline, dad bod. And the commercial is him saying, hey, listen, uh, you look way more similar to me than you do that model that's normally in this commercial. And the shampoo seems to be working fine for me. You may want to try it out. Suave for men. Here you go. (laughs) This is just not, I don't think it's going to go well. And it's just, it's just everywhere. And you guys through the years, you've heard me talk about this in all different kinds of ways. But I would argue that unrestrained lust, a total lack of sexual inhibition, has not been good for us as a society. 
And I'd like to keep it just on the subject of adultery for a moment. It's hard to get precise data on adultery, mostly because people who are committing adultery want to keep it a secret. But according to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, they say that 15% of women and 25% of men have committed adultery. 15%, 25%. And they say if you include uh, emotional and sexual intimacy, just without actual intercourse, it moves to 35% and 45%. In 2015, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy reported that in 41% of marriages, one or both spouses admit to either physical or emotional infidelity. That's just admit to it. And in fact, they said 17% admit to infidelity with a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law. 17%. 74% of men say they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught. 68% of women say they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught. So we're not doing great out there. We're flippant about covenant keeping at best. And I don't think that we are aware of some of the damage that it's doing to us. Let me just give you one example. There's a book called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. They did a 25-year study where they tracked the long-term outcomes of 131 children of divorce. It's uh, considered groundbreaking and foundational for understanding of of a divorce's effects on, on children. Let me just read you an excerpt from one participant. As I began to speak with others about the emotional impact of their parents' divorce on their romantic lives today, similar themes came forth again and again described in similar language. I have built up walls, rarely letting anyone in. I have trouble living in the moment. I often find myself wondering how things will end even as they start. I feel like the rug could be pulled out from underneath me at any time. I constantly set up tests forcing people to prove their love to me. I have a hard time trusting. I am so scared of being abandoned. Just haunting. There was another child of divorced parents due to adultery. Uh, Just put it in crushing terms. They said, quote, If mommy and daddy can stop loving each other, then that means at some point they could stop loving me. And we're just, we're so committed to ourselves. Like when individualism goes to its extreme, that's our culture right now. But we haven't noticed it yet. And we keep telling people that their problems are that they aren't putting themselves first enough. We're a society desperately in need of covenants where I know that I know that I know that you aren't going anywhere. And I don't have to think about it. I don't have to consider it. I don't have to worry about it. I mean, I cannot imagine the damage to my soul if it was always in the back of my mind that Courtney might decide to leave me one day. If that's just always hanging over me. If every argument might be the last straw. If our kids had to worry that every argument might be the one that finally tears our our family apart. 
I mean, I, just can't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. We were made for covenant faithfulness with God and with others. And the further we get from it, the more trouble we find ourselves in. We're more anxious, more depressed, more unsettled, more unsure, less trusting, more fearful, because nothing is secure. No relationships are permanent, reliable, steady. There's no solid ground because anything can be taken in an instant. Even your closest, most important relationships. It's supposed to be that our closest relationships are the most secure, where we know that we know that we know that God is never going to turn on us because I'm saved by grace. It's his covenant-keeping grace that sustains our relationship, and that's how I know he'll always be there. You know, one of the most repeated commands in the Bible in one form or another is the command, don't be afraid. Some 117 times a version of that command is repeated in Scripture, and it's almost always, not always, but almost, followed by some version of, because I am with you and will never forsake you. It's what God has to repeat to us over and over and over. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. So don't be afraid. Because life is so unpredictable. A thousand things could go wrong any second. So I need to know that I know that God is not going anywhere. And our marriage is supposed to be a covenant kept by grace where two become one flesh, inseparable, So I can let my guard down because I know this person will never betray me, never cheat on me, never leave me. And then our children grow up in an environment where they know that they know their parents are inseparable. And that security and solid footing supports them as they grow. I would argue we have an entire society experiencing the breakdowns and consequences of lack of covenants. And we don't even realize it. We don't even realize what it's doing to us. So, now that that's sitting heavy, what do we do? What do we do with all of this? How do we, how do we walk in the wisdom of the seventh commandment? How do we actually begin to believe God when he says that sex is precious and belongs exclusively in a covenant, in a culture that could not be more opposite of that? What do we do with our sexual sin? How do we actually change our hearts so that lust is uprooted? These are loaded questions, and they shouldn't be answered flippantly or in a shallow manner because that sort of change requires some serious horsepower. And if your thought is, okay, well, those are the rules, those are the restrictions, and if they fit my nature, I just need to try harder to obey them. I think if that's your whole arsenal, You're going to get really frustrated over time. So what do we do and how do we actually begin to experience and see change? Let me give you an example from John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Why don't you flip there? Let's read this short story together to conclude. This is a story of a time when Jesus actually caught someone violating the seventh commandment. 
someone caught in the act of adultery. Let's notice how he responds to it. John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placed her in the midst, and he said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. So Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want you to notice the order of his statements in verse 11. It's critical. I think most of us would reverse this order, and we'd be wrong. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. So which comes first, forgiveness or life change? Non-rhetorical. Feel free to respond. Forgiveness. Forgiveness comes first. The change is the result. The power to change is found in the assurance of God's acceptance. It's the covenant-keeping grace of God that actually motivates us to change in a way that rules and laws never could. Never could. Let me give you another story that I've told a lot, and it's another one that is a favorite to tell because I think it illustrates this point. So when I was little, I had a great-grandfather. We called him Granddaddy, and we would go visit him and my great-grandmother from time to time. And I, you'll find this hard to believe, but when I was little, at times I could have been a little wild and a bit obnoxious. And I always had this sense that maybe I was a little too loud for granddaddy and that he didn't always fully enjoy my presence in his otherwise quiet home. And he never said anything or did anything. I just, that's what I thought. And I might've been wrong because I was little. Anyway, that's the vibe that I got. So I didn't really love being there. So we'd pull up to granddaddy's house and mom would park the car And before we'd get out, she would turn around and she would look at me and she would say, Adam, when we go inside, you will speak to granddaddy, you will hug him, and you will tell him what you've been doing lately. Okay. So we go inside, walk in. Hey, granddaddy. I've been playing with Legos. (laughs) Also, when I was young, I had a grandmother who was Mima? Now, Mima loved me. And there would be times, uh, her and my grandfather lived on a farm, and there would be times where I'd go stay with her for a week, um, them both, and, and be at the farm. And when I'd get there, she was always like, I'm so excited that you're here. I've planned the whole week. I look forward to these weeks. And oh my gosh, we're gonna have such a great time. And I just love being around just that all the time. She was always like that. And she was like that my whole life. All the way, actually, up until 
Um, so when Courtney and I got engaged, we were told by Mima's doctor, she had been battling cancer. We were told that she only had a couple of months at most to live. And our wedding was eight or nine months away. And so as a family, we just sort of knew Mima was not going to make it to the wedding. And Mima had this thing. I don't know where she got it from, and, or even if you've ever heard of somebody thinking this way, but she loved to talk about dancing at someone's wedding. It was a big deal to her. She would say, I'm going to dance at your wedding. And to her, it was this way of symbolizing, I'm sharing in your joy of this moment. I'm, I'm giving my stamp of approval to the fact that you're getting married. I'm dancing at your wedding. So Courtney and I get engaged. The doctor says, I'm really sorry, a couple months. And Mima says, no, I'm going to dance at Adam's wedding. And we're all like, yeah, you're, you, you know, of course you are. And uh, so she makes it a couple weeks and a couple of months. And it starts getting closer. And we're all like, oh, my gosh, she's, she's you know, she's getting weak. And all the normal things are happening. But she's hanging in there. And it gets closer and closer to the wedding. And we start thinking, is she going to actually make it to the wedding? And then sure enough, wedding day, Mima is, is weak and struggling, but she shows up to the wedding. She's got her oxygen, you know, and she's, but she's there. And we just couldn't believe it. Go to the reception. And at one point in the reception, my aunt comes up to me and says, Adam, Mima wants to dance with you. And I was like, What? So I go find her. She takes a big hit of oxygen and she walks out. <laughs> and she dances with me at my wedding. Gosh, it's 15 years. I still cry about it. And while we're dancing at my wedding, nonstop, I'm so proud of you. I love the man that you've become. It's been a joy to watch you grow up. I think about those times when you come to the farm and we had so much fun. Those are my favorite memories. Sure enough, uh, like two or three weeks after our wedding, Mima died. I don't believe it's scientifically possible, but I would tell you that she made herself stay alive until she danced with me. And then she was like, okay, I'm done. I'm good. I don't think that's how it works. I'm just telling you that's what she did. All of that to say. Do you think when I was a kid and... My mom was dropping me off at Mima's house. Do you think she had to stop and turn around and say, hey, Adam, when you go inside, you're going to speak to Mima and you're going to hug her and you're going to tell her what you've been doing lately? No, no. She couldn't even get the car in park before I'm throwing open the back door. Mima, I'm here and I've been playing with Legos. <laughs> Grace and love and acceptance have the power to change your heart in a way that rules never can. Never can. And you can go through the motions, but it will not be a renewed change heart. That's where the power comes from. And don't get it twisted. Mima had rules. She had a way that she ran her house, and when you were with Mima, you operated based how she wanted her house to be run. But it was an entirely different reason and motivation. Grace and acceptance have a power to change our hearts in a way that leads to a change in our actions. So I, I know who I'm talking to here. Um, I know what time it is. I know the sexual sin represented in this room. I know the power that our culture has over many of us on this issue. 
So it's just critical. You have to know where the power to change comes from. And it comes from Jesus catching you in the act and saying, I don't condemn you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In me, you're accepted. In me, you are now righteous. In me, you are now forgiven. In me, you are now clean. In me, you are now the beloved of God. Now go and live like it. Now go and sin no more. So as we go and we take communion and we respond together, let's receive the heart-changing grace and acceptance of Christ so that we can then go and sin no more.